Good morning, church. We are again continuing on in our confession of faith as a church. What it is that we believe as adopted sons and daughters of the living God. Or perhaps, what are some of the core teachings or doctrines that we hold on to in our faith? Now, a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that Scripture is a symphony, and, and we cannot and should not just take one measure out of that symphony if we expect to understand the whole of the composition. And our topic for today is no exception. The statement in our confession of faith that we're looking at today is, is short and to the point, but that doesn't mean that our discussion of it is easy, nor can it be done briefly. It is a key part of the entire symphony, and its theme is part of a larger theme that is woven throughout the entirety of the Bible. In our confession of faith, we have a pretty bold statement about what a Christian is. Our confession says, We believe a Christian is one saved by grace, whose life is transformed into the likeness of Christ by his atoning death and the power of his resurrection. Now this is a foundational aspect of the Christian faith. It at first appears to be quite simple, but to properly grasp it and to properly grasp the magnitude of this aspect of the Christian faith, one needs to have an understanding of a, a number of other key aspects of who God is and, and who we are and how these other doctrines tie in together and, and prop up this particular aspect of our faith. And so my prayer for today is that even though we'll very quickly work through some of these core doctrines, you'll discover a new appreciation for the grace of God and the miracle that he has done in our lives as Christians. Now, maybe some of this will be new. Maybe some of this you're not sure if you exactly agree with, and that's okay. Um, as we have this conversation as brothers and sisters, this may happen from time to time. But I believe that the truths from Scripture that we will very quickly survey today will lead us to a greater appreciation for the glory and majesty of our God and lead us to a humility before Him and within each, with each other and fill, us, uh, fill in us a heart of thankfulness in worship of our God. So to start, this statement in our confession begins, A Christian is one saved by grace. So what does this mean? We're often taught from when we're young, or we assume for so much of our lives that a Christian is someone who does this or that. A Christian attends a church service regularly. A Christian is someone who reads their Bibles and, and tries to connect or tries to, to connect with God and live by God's laws. A Christian is a good moral person uh, who lives a decent life. A Christian is saved by faith. They're saved by their belief in God. A Christian is someone who, who takes certain steps and then becomes saved. Now, do any of these statements sound familiar to you? Does this ring true for you at all? To be a Christian, someone needs to dot, dot, dot. We're often taught, or we often have this, this default belief within ourselves that a Christian is someone who does this or that. We affirm that works on their own don't provide salvation, but a Christian is still someone who is doing something. Somehow our salvation, while we never actually come out and say it, but in, in the way that we often think about it, our salvation comes through our own actions. 
It's because we ourselves did something that we are saved. Now, I won't say works because we, we freely admit that salvation is not by works. But yet, deep down, very often inside, when we think about this, there is this thought that salvation has something to do with us. We did something that brought about our salvation. But how much time do we spend actually pondering the truth that a Christian is simply a person saved by grace? How much time do we spend pondering what grace actually is? How much time do we spend actually pondering why and to what extent we truly need God's grace? How much time do we spend actually pondering how God's grace is manifest? Our confession of faith states, we believe a Christian is one saved by grace. But do we truly understand it or believe it? Now, at this point in a typical sermon, I think I would just jump in and, and look to some specific scriptures about what it means that we're saved by grace. But like I said, this is a very serious topic that requires a lot more time than we have in one message on a Sunday morning. I was talking with Jake and Seth a few weeks back, and as I was starting to put this message together, and I said that I think I needed about four or five sermons to really do justice to this topic, maybe even more. So just as an incredibly brief prelude to what, God's, to what is God's grace and how it's manifest, we need to quickly set the table with why and to what extent God's grace is needed. And even before that, we need to understand the biblical worldview of who God is. We need to have an understanding of some of these important points to truly grasp the magnitude and glory that is God's saving grace in our lives. So very quickly, we're going to spend a minute or two or ten rather than a sermon or three on this nature of God. So please bear with me. We're going to go through this very quickly. But it's important that we set the table with this so that we can truly appreciate the truth in our statement of faith. I'd love to spend a lot more time really filling this out. But for today, we're just going to do a quick overview of this. Now, according to the authors of the Bible, Yahweh, the one true God, the triune God in whom that we believe in, is absolutely sovereign over his creation. Our God is our sovereign king. Psalm 33, verses 6 to 12 says, The heavens were made by the work of Yahweh, and all the stars by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the water of the sea into a heap. He puts the depths into storehouses. Let the whole earth fear Yahweh. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came into being. He commanded and it came into existence. The Lord frustrates the counsel of the nations. He thwarts the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Happy is the nation whose God is Yahweh the people he has chosen to be his own possession. Now in Psalm 135, verse 6, it says, The Lord does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the depths. Now these are just two passages, but they proclaim a common theme throughout all of Scripture. Our God is a sovereign king who does as he wills for his own glory. Now, if you're like me, you're not as nearly familiar with the Old Testament as you are with the New. 
But just like in the Gospels, we get this back and forth with teaching about God and stories illustrating those truths. We're not as familiar with it, but there's a lot of good stuff in the Old Testament, albeit sometimes confusing. And Isaiah 10 is one of those passages, a story to back up some of the teaching which we saw in those two Psalms. Now, Isaiah 10 contains this incredible story of God's complete sovereignty. Here, God brings in the horrible, historically evil pagan Assyrians to bring judgment on the Israelites. And then God punishes the Assyrians in light of their king's arrogant heart. God says that this is what he is doing. All the while, from the Assyrians' perspective, they think it's their idea. And they're conquering the land. The Assyrians are doing these things, and, and God just calls them tools. He calls them an axe in the hand of the one who wields it, or who chops with it. God decrees, God uses the sinful actions of an evil people to bring judgment on his chosen people, and then rescues them and brings judgment on the evil nation. It's a rather fascinating piece of scripture. Anyways, then later on, Isaiah 46, verses 10 to 11 we have this clear speaking from Yahweh, our Creator God, Himself, about who He is and His complete sovereignty over all of creation. He says, I declare the end from the beginning, and from long ago what is not yet done, saying, My plan will take place, and I will do all my will. I call a bird of prey from the east, a man from my purpose from a far country, Yes, I have spoken, so I will also bring it about. I have planned it, I will also do it. Now, I'm sure most of you are familiar with the story of Joseph, the coat of many colors. Just think about his life for a moment. What did he all go through to get to where he did in the end? Was it by chance? Now, pastor and theologian James White said recently, Joseph learned a lot of good theology while languishing in prison. Joseph learned good theology while languishing in prison. Joseph was a favored son of Jacob, and his brothers hated him for it. One day they got so angry that they planned to do away with him. They, they had actually wanted to kill him, but instead they sold him into slavery. As a slave, Joseph gained prominence in his master's household. But then he was falsely accused of attempted rape. He was thrown in prison, and he rose to prominence in the prison. Eventually, he is brought before the Pharaoh in Egypt and is made the highest ranking and most powerful man in all of Egypt outside of Pharaoh. And then God sends a great drought and famine, and Joseph is in charge of providing the stored food for all the people in Egypt, plus those coming in from surrounding countries. Joseph's brothers come to him, and what does Joseph tell them? Does he just say, ah, it's okay, by random chance it all worked out in the end? No, of course not. In Genesis 50, verse 20, he says, You intended evil against me, but God intended it for good. God meant it. God planned it. God ordained it. God caused it. You brothers intended evil, but our sovereign God has a far greater plan and intended what happened to me to fulfill his plan and his purpose, just as he predestined from before time. It's quite a story. And very quickly, just think about the intricate connection between all those involved in the crucifixion of Jesus.
Now, Scripture tells us that the incarnation of God the Son in the person of Jesus, his life, and his crucifixion was all plan A. It was God's plan from the beginning. So many aspects of Jesus' birth, life, and crucifixion had to happen exactly as they did for it to work as it did. I mean, there's an incredible amount of Old Testament prophecy that points to the specific aspects of Jesus' birth, life, and crucifixion. It happened exactly the way in which God decreed it from before the creation of anything. And the Apostle Peter clearly acknowledges this in Acts. In Acts 2.23, Peter is preaching to the Jews and he says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And later on in chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, the people are praying to God and they say, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Yahweh is our sovereign king, and his will is being done because he decreed it. The beautiful symphony of scripture is unified in its theme throughout. Now when we think about grace, we think typically about salvation. And that really is the point of the message today. That is the sermon that I wrote first, but then as I pondered it, I, I felt it was important to add to very briefly this background that we've been working through. Grace flows out of the recognition that this universe has a purpose, and God is accomplishing his purpose. He is doing things his way. When thinking through this idea of grace, it's important to start with the sovereign kingship of God, and not with a God who is surprised and, and shocked by what takes place within his creation. And when we start with the sovereign God, we have a meaningful foundation to look at man. And that is something that we're going to quickly do as well before we can really get to our statement of faith today and the key text that it is founded on. Now there's a couple of well-known verses in Romans that I'm sure many of you are familiar with or have memorized. Romans 3.23 and 6.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Now this means you and I, for all have sinned. It's not just some people out in the world, it's everyone. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, For in Adam all die, or everyone dies because we all belong to Adam. You see, we have a sin nature. We are born sinners. It is in our fallen nature to rebel against God, to shake our fists at Him and tell Him that we're going to make our own rules, that we'll control our own lives, we'll control our own destinies. Now, this, this sounds harsh. This doesn't sound like something that one of us might say. But according to God's Word, it describes exactly who we are. On our own, apart from God, in our flesh, in our human nature. In our fallen nature, we all sin. We all rebel. So all of humanity in Adam has a sin nature. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin, the price of sin, the justice we receive because of our sin is death. Physical death. 
spiritual death, separation from God eternally. We don't have a bright future on our own. In fact, it's rather bleak. And I touched on this a couple weeks ago when talking about the judgment at the end. Anyway, we need to keep going. So if you're still with me, I've gotten to the point that God is sovereign and we're all dead in our sin. Now, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person, the person in the flesh, people in their natural state as sons and daughters of Adam, do not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to them, and they're not able to understand them. In Romans 3, verses 10 to 11, Paul is quoting the Old Testament, and he says, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. There is no one who seeks God. What this means is that in our sin nature, we are so blind, we truly do not see God. We cannot find our way home to Him on our own. And really, we're, we're dead. We're not just blind. We're not just spiritually sick. We are dead. We are laying on the operating table, flatlined. There is no pulse. We are incapable of asking the doctor to revive us. There is nothing we can do. Now, if someone who's merely sick or injured, they can find their way to a physician for help. They can ask for help. They, they know, I need to get to the doctor. I need to get to the hospital. I'm sick. I'm hurt. I need saving. The one who is dead on the table cannot ask for help, does not ask for help, will not ask for help. And spiritually, that is what the sin nature of being born in Adam means. And each of us is born in Adam with this sin nature. Are you still with me? Some of this isn't super fun stuff to talk about, but it is the truth. It's important for us to understand. And ultimately, knowing these hard truths makes God's glory so much greater. Again, before we can move on into the feast, I just want to make sure we've got this appetizer. Each of us is born in Adam with a sin nature. We have all rebelled against our sovereign God. We have all sinned. The wages of sin is death. Because we are dead, we are dead. We are incapable of asking the doctor to resuscitate us. God's justice against sinful humanity will be fully realized upon the final judgment. And again, that's something that we touched on a couple weeks ago. So what is a Christian? Our statement of faith says, a Christian is one saved by grace. Now, a well-known passage of Scripture is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. I'm sure many of you have it memorized. It gets quoted quite often in churches, but I'm not sure how much we actually get what, into Paul is, what Paul is really teaching in context in this letter to the church in Ephesus. And sometimes we know a verse so well that we miss what it says. We don't, we don't stop and ponder it. Now, Ephesians 1 is, is quite well known. It's been read in our services several times over the last few months. But how closely do we really look at what the words are saying in this chapter? Do we stop and think about what they really mean? And how well do we know Ephesians chapter 2? Do we ever just ignore the chapter and verse designations and just read this text as a whole. In Ephesians chapter 1, we read some great statements like, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ 
with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption of sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Our God is sovereign, as he declared about himself back in the Old Testament scriptures. And then continuing on in chapter 2, which is the main text for this statement of faith that we're looking at today. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Oh, glory to God. What an amazing passage. What a loaded passage. What a beautiful passage. And, and Paul just keeps going. And I think many of us, we read or we have memorized verses 8 and 9. We know them well and we hear that we're saved by faith and not works. And we often hear that my faith, my believing, my accepting, my understanding of God, my choosing to follow Jesus has saved me. I'm not saved by my good deeds, but by my belief in Jesus. Now maybe, maybe you don't think that way. Or, or maybe you do. It can be easy to think that way. But we kind of miss part of what the text is actually saying. We kind of miss the, the grace part. We, we don't really ponder it. We kind of just gloss over the gift of God part because we already heard faith, not works. Scripture teaches that we are lost. We are dead. We cannot and will not do anything to remedy that condition. But God. But God. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Just let that sit for a moment. Take a second to ponder that.
in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. No one is even capable of coming to me unless they are drawn by the Father. Now the word draws that Jesus uses in the Greek is the word helkio. This is the same word used in Acts chapter 21 verse 30. See if you can guess how it was translated there. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. Which word do you think it was? Did you catch it? The people dragged Paul out of the temple. This is the exact same word in Greek used for God the Father drawing people to Jesus. Who he says, no one can come to him unless this action is done by the Father. You see, God does not merely entice us with beautiful words of his kingdom. No, he gets a hold of us and he brings us to himself. And this is by the grace of God. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death. The person in their sin nature does not accept the things of God. They are folly to him. No one can come to Jesus unless they are drawn by the Father. There is no one righteous. There is no one who seeks God. All praise to God the Father as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. We were all dead in sin, but by grace we have been saved. What an incredible symphony. As Blumenort Mennonite Church, we believe that a Christian is one saved by grace. The preacher to the Hebrews writes that God's grace is God at work in us to do what pleases him. Dictionary definitions of grace include kindness, forgiveness, or manifestation of favor. It is by God's kindness you have been saved. It is by God's manifestation of favor that you have been saved. It is God at work in you, bringing about your faith that you have been saved. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. How much do we ever ponder that we owe our salvation 100% completely and absolutely to God in every way? Our God deserves all our praise. He deserves all the glory. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Now this is a verse that I, a number of years ago, I began to really ponder more and more. Especially that gift of God part. What is the gift? Is the gift my forgiveness of my sin? Is the gift the, the possibility of salvation if I just do these couple of things? What is the gift? Could the gift be the faith that is required to believe? Biblical scholar A. Skevington Wood in his commentary on this passage wrote that Christians owe our salvation entirely to the undeserved favor of God. He said, Grace is at once the objective, operative, and instrumental cause. 
While faith is a necessary condition, it is not a quality, virtue, or faculty. It is not something that we can produce. It is simply a trustful response that is evoked by the Holy Spirit. And to make sure we understand this, Wood writes that Paul includes that nothing is of our own doing. Everything is the gift of God. Our salvation through Christ, Christ, the grace bestowed on us as rebellious sinners, and the faith required to accept and believe are all the gift from God. So in simple words, what does it mean that a Christian is one saved by grace? Well, think of it in terms of it being something that God does versus what we do. When we attribute our salvation to the fact that we believe in God, or, or we have this faith, or, or we live according to a set of moral standards, we're actually attributing our salvation to ourselves, to what we do, something that we did. When we do that, it starts to become easier and easier to either beat ourselves up over our mistakes, and worry about our salvation, and struggle with a guilty conscience, or we begin to think of ourselves as better than others. We judge non-Christians and we judge each other based on how we view our own morality. When we have this mindset that somehow our salvation has to do with us, we worry that it is on us to keep it. We struggle with making sure we're good enough or we do certain things in certain ways. We beat ourselves up over mistakes or failing a test or succumbing to a temptation. We look at God as still being distant and ourselves as unable to truly come before Him. When we have this mindset that somehow our salvation has to do with us, we can start to look at others differently. We can judge others for sinning differently than we do. We can look down our noses at non-Christians or even other Christians whose lives might not look like our own. They might look a little different than us. We think of ourselves as better than others. And this line of thinking can be very dangerous. This is when Christianity becomes a religion and takes us down a different path from what it really is. It takes away our witness. It robs us of true worship of the God who saved us. It steals from the glory that God is due. As a Christian, our salvation is not something that we do. Rather, it is something that God does or has already done. Now, in his epistle to a pastor named Titus, the Apostle Paul writes, this is Titus 3, verses 4 to 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Over and over again in Scripture, we get this theme of our salvation being by and through and for God and God alone. It is completely up to Him, and ultimately He gets the praise and the glory. And this is so true. A Christian is one whom God, in His infinite wisdom and love, has chosen to save. By the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we come to this saving faith in Christ. Our faith is a gift from God. And what this means for us is everything. God deserves our praise, our worship, and all that we do. Because he, he and He alone has freed us 
from bondage. We need not beat ourselves up or worry about being good enough. We do not judge others or think of ourselves as more highly than anyone else because we are all equal before our holy God. Our life is His. Our entire life, everything in it is His because without Him, we have nothing. We deserve justice, but instead, we receive grace. Our God is a sovereign king, and all glory and honor and praise belong to him. As Blumenart Mennonite Church, we believe a Christian is one saved by grace, whose life is transformed into the likeness of Christ. Now there is a second point to what a Christian is here, and I, and I can't just end this message without including the second part of the statement. It is at once the outcome of God's grace in our lives, and the purpose for God's saving grace. And for us today, it's also the application of the first point in this message. Now this second part is something that we, we must keep in mind. And just like Jesus saying the greatest commandment is to love God and love others, there is a second part that flows from the first. Our salvation is in the same vein. We are saved by God's grace alone. This is absolutely true in Scripture. And flowing from that, the fruit of the Spirit should become more and more evident as we grow to become more like Christ. As Blumenort Mennonite Church, we believe a Christian is one saved by grace, whose life is transformed into the likeness of Christ. Now this transforming has a theological term as well, sanctification. I mentioned this briefly a couple weeks ago when talking about the immortality of our souls. God chooses us, turns us towards him, opens our eyes to him, but that's not the end. We still have a life to live in the here and now before we continue on into eternity. There is a purpose to this life. And just like children grow from newborn babies to toddlers to adolescents to young adults to more mature adults, so too we as Christians grow as we are transformed to Christ's likeness. There is a purpose to God's sovereign saving grace in our lives. Let's quickly read Romans 8, 28-30. We know that all things work together for good of those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. For those He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Our Heavenly Father saves us by grace so that he may transform us into the likeness of the Son. The good news of our salvation in Christ is not just about the forgiveness of sins. That's part of it, and what a glorious part it is. But our salvation is also that we might be made into the likeness of of the Son. A Christian is one saved by grace whose life is transformed into the likeness of Christ. So what does Scripture say about being transformed? And I know we're running long here, so please bear with me. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In Scripture, we see this theme of change. And there are other passages as well besides this one. But we see this idea of not remaining the same. Both Paul and the preacher to the Hebrews 
talk about growth as Christians, not just remaining like babies, only drinking milk, but moving on to solid food. There most definitely should be a difference between our lives before Christ and our lives after Christ, or what our lives might look like if we weren't Christian compared to how we are living now. So what might that difference look like? In 1 John 2, the author writes that those who claim to be Christians are ones who are actually keeping the word of God. And then in verse 6, it is written, Whoever says he abides in him, meaning Jesus, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 1 Peter 2.21 says something similar. Scripture calls us to look like Jesus. And as we grow in our faith, we are being transformed. We should look more and more like him. So how might we look like Jesus? What does this mean? Well, I believe that while Jesus gives us many great examples of things to do, God is most concerned with who we are becoming. Meaning we can do all sorts of good things, but what matters is our character. I'm just going to rattle off a few quick verses here that Paul writes in a few of his different letters. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Let all that you do be done in love. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Now in these passages, Scripture does not appear to be overly concerned with what exactly it is that we do as Christians. Now in Scripture, there are things that we as Christians are expected to do. The Bible mentions specifically prayer, fasting, tithing, using our spiritual gifts to benefit the church, encouraging one another, working respectfully for our employers, treating our spouses and our families well, and so forth. So while there is an expectation to be involved in these activities in some capacity, Scripture does not give details as to what exactly this needs to look like. But what it does say is that as we go along, as we make career choices, as we live and work and play in our communities, as we meet together for worship, as we serve one another, as we live out our lives as the people that God has made us to be, as we are being faithful to how we are wired as individuals, let all that we do be done in love. Do everything for God's glory. Work as though whatever you're doing is for God himself. Does that make sense? We don't simply remain the same. Now, there is an expectation of some specific activities in our lives, but we should not beat ourselves or each other up because of how we live out our faith is not exactly how someone else does. Our transformation is truly about our character. How are we being faithful with how God has made us? Is the fruit of the Spirit that we read about in Galatians chapter 5 evident in our lives, at least in some form? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now one more note on this transformation that we go through is that this is a lifelong process, one that will not be completed until we're spending an eternity in the presence of our God. So work at it. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you in this area. Ask for growth and maturity of character. Seek to become more like Christ. And spend every day of your life looking to grow just a little more. One Christian author wrote, Becoming like Christ is a long, slow process of growth. Spiritual maturity is neither instant nor automatic. It is a gradual, progressive development that will take the rest of your life. God is far more interested in who you are than what you do.
My brothers and sisters, church, a Christian is one saved by grace, whose life is transformed into the likeness of Christ by his atoning death and the power of his resurrection. And we could spend a lot more time talking about all the ins and outs of the spiritual growth and what it looks like to be more like Jesus. And we could spend time looking at, at the atoning death of Jesus and of his resurrection. But for today, we're just going to leave it at that. Uh, let's just say thank you to Jesus for his atoning death on the cross. And, and thank you to the Father for his grace to save us from our own sinful rebellion. Church, may we always remember that our salvation is not from anything that we do ourselves, but that it is completely by the grace of God and by the gift of faith that he bestows on us. And let us, with thankful hearts, devote our lives to our worship of our God as he transforms us by his Holy Spirit into the likeness of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we just come before you today and want to sing your praise, God. We give you all the glory. God, we thank you for your, for your grace that you snatched us from the jaws of death. You turned us to yourself. You opened our eyes. You bestowed upon us the gift of faith in you that we might have a new life in you, that we might be transformed by your Holy Spirit into the likeness of the Son. Jesus, thank you for your death on the cross. Thank you for your resurrection, that we can have faith, that we can, we can know that we will have our own future resurrection with you someday. We will spend an eternity with you solely because of your grace. Can I just pray that for myself, my family, for everyone in this church family, God, all my brothers and sisters, this Blue Menorah Mennonite Church, God, that your spirit just falls on us, rests on us, picks us up, just works in our heart and our mind, transforms our lives to look like Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.